We're going to begin reading in verse number 1, and we're going to read down to verse 21. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse number 1 says this, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. His disciples asked Him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. I pray that you give unction in the preaching, in the listening, that your spirit would administrate and coordinate every single facet and every single moment of this sermon tonight, that you would do a lasting work in our hearts and minds. May we draw closer unto you uh, through your word, through your spirit, and we'll be sure to give you the praise for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This chapter opens with what is one of the most astounding scenes in all of Scripture. In fact, it's so significant and important that it's recorded in three Gospels. We find it in Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9, and Mark chapter number 9. And the Lord, the Bible says, was transfigured before His disciples. All of this is sort of predicated on the closing verse of chapter 16. When the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And there's a lot of things we can learn about the Lord uh, from the transfiguration, a lot of instructive truths. I would say this, that by and large, the overall intent of it was that the Lord was giving a glimpse both to His disciples and also to us through holy inspired Scripture of His own glory. Uh, Peter, many years later, 
would speak of this uh, occasion. He would say that, uh, that we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and majesty of His coming. Peter was talking about one day when the Lord's going to come back. Uh, the Bible describes the second coming of the Lord as having two advents, uh, two parts to it. He's going to come back and rapture out the church. Seven, year, seven years later, He's going to come back and gloriously appear unto all men. And uh, Peter was saying, listen, when, you're, when we're talking to you about the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, we're not talking about something that we don't know nothing about. We were eyewitnesses of the power and majesty of His glory. And the transfiguration, I think at its heart, was a microcosm, a small example of the kingdom. Uh, the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. We see Jesus and He's not humbled and He's not... Uh, being, uh, I, I was going to say he's not robed in flesh. He is robed in flesh. But what you're seeing is not his flesh. You're seeing his glory. We see him not abased, but we see him exalted. We see him not humbled, but high and lifted up. We see him uh, not shrouded in grief, but shrouded in glory. It is a picture of what Jesus is going to look like when he sits upon his throne. And then we have Moses that is present there. And I think he pictures those that have entered into the kingdom uh, via death. Moses, of course, uh, died before he ever reached the promised land. Uh, but he, by our faith, has obtained uh, good and greater things, the Hebrew writer says. And he, through his faith, obtained a good report. Uh, though he did not lay hands on the promises, the realization of them, through his death he entered into the kingdom of heaven. And then I think Elijah is a picture of those that are going to enter uh, the kingdom of heaven, not by death, but by the rapture. Elijah never died. Elijah was carried up by a whirlwind into heaven. And uh, that's a picture of the church. The church is, uh, that is alive at Christ's coming. We're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven through death, but through the rapture. One preacher said it this way, I'm not looking for the undertaker, but I'm looking for the uppertaker. Amen. And then you have Peter, James, and John. They're in unglorified flesh, and I think they probably represent uh, natural Israel. Uh, you know, there's going to be a portion of Israel that's going to, by the grace and protection of God, is going to live through the tribulation period. And they're going to go on in their unregenerate uh, bodies, their bodies just like your and mine, and live at least for a time, for a season, in the kingdom of heaven. I think John and Peter and James are probably pictures of them. And so when the Lord said at the close of chapter 16 that there's some here that weren't going to die until they saw the, the kingdom and the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, uh, that was absolutely fulfilled within a handful of verses later because they saw what the kingdom was going to be like. But I also think tonight that when we look at their experience and what happens in the following passages, I cannot help but see something that has a direct link to what you and I have experienced and will experience in our lives. You know, we set aside time and, and schedule these meetings and, and we pray over them and we seek God over them. And then I know there's much sacrifice that goes into uh, to uh, these meetings taking place and, and being, we might say, a, a success. And uh, we never need to forget, listen, it's God's people that support those things. And I say that, me and, and Brother Larry and those of us that are involved in the administration of the church. Uh, you know, the church don't produce no money, amen? It comes from God's people, amen? It's like government, amen? Government don't produce nothing. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, it just takes what people have. Well, the church, and uh, it don't produce nothing in and of itself. It doesn't produce a product. 
but the church, rather, it survives off of the uh, graciousness and the obedience of God's people in giving tithes. We couldn't have this meeting if you hadn't uh, paid the preacher. We couldn't have this meeting if you hadn't been willing to come to attend it and to be diligent and to be uh, to to be consistent throughout the week and to have your heart open and. Uh, a lot of things had to transpire for this meeting to take place. But the reason that we have these meetings is, and I appreciated the preacher saying this over and over again, it's not because we ain't got nothing to do. It's not because we're just sitting around saying, what can we do to take up people's time? But it's because we have a heart and a desire to know more of God, to give more of ourselves to the Lord, to grow deeper in our walk with Him. And I think when we look at this passage, there are some things that we can learn. I think you'll understand as we get into the preaching. I want to give you three simple thoughts tonight. I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. First, I want to tell you some things that we have experienced over the past few days. And probably not everybody has experienced all three of them. Maybe some have experienced all three of them. But probably everybody that came with their heart open has experienced at least one of these things. And then number two, I want to give you some things we can expect after the meeting is closed out after life in many ways normalizes and adjusts to the regular schedule. And then I want to give you some things that we must exercise in our lives if we're going to see any fruit that remains from what transpired over the last few days. Well, first off, think with me for a moment about some things that we have experienced. And think about what Peter, James, and John experienced on this mountaintop. Uh, This must have been a remarkable thing. As they went up there with Jesus, I don't know that they expected any of this to happen. I sort of think they probably didn't. And uh, the Lord Jesus is over to the side and He's praying as He had done many, many times. I don't know what they were doing. If they were doing what they normally do, they was probably sleeping. Amen? And uh, as all this is transpiring, all of a sudden a light begins to glow and shine. Reminds me of what Paul said about the light that he saw. I believe it was the same light on the day that Paul got saved. He said it was exceeding bright. It was brighter than even the sun. And this sort of jars them out of their sleep, out of their tranquility. Uh, It sort of jars them out of their daydreaming. And they look over and they see Jesus glowing. The Bible says transfigured. That literally means shining or shimmering. It means emanating a great and, and awesome light. And they see Him shining. His face, the Bible says, did shine as the sun and His raiment was white as the light. Now, when they looked at him, I guarantee you something that ran through their mind was this. What happened to Jesus? They had never seen him like this before. They had only seen him in his earthly human visage. They had only seen him as the carpenter from Galilee. They had only seen him as their loving master. But now all of a sudden, can I say it this way? They're seeing him in a different light. But you know, I think probably... Whenever Christ robed Himself in flesh and was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, that the angels probably gazed down upon that manger scene and thought to themselves, what happened to Jesus? We're not used to seeing Him in this form. We're not used to seeing Him robed in flesh. We're not used to seeing Him without the glory emanating from His person. We're not used to seeing Him without the heavenly choir gathered around and singing His praises. We're not used to seeing Him without the four beasts around the throne crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God omnipotent reign. We're not used to seeing Him this way. Can I say it this way? I think that the way that the angels were used to seeing Him is the way He really is. I think the way that His disciples were used to seeing Him was how He was for but just a moment in time. And we could say it like this. 
it's a strange way to them that they're seeing Him, but for the first time in their lives, they're seeing Him as He truly is. Hey, listen, He didn't put off His glory when He came to this earth. He robed His glory in flesh. One commentator said it this way, it was as though in this moment that His glory overtook His humanity and emanated forth. And they're not, listen, they're not seeing Him as something that He's not, as they thought, no doubt, but they're seeing Him as who and what He truly is. They saw Him transfigured. And can I say this to you? Some of us, I think in a sense over this past week, we've seen the transfiguration. We've seen Jesus in a way that maybe we've never seen Him before. As the preacher got up and preached about the, all of the things that Christ has done for us, the great and vast love that He has for us, the ministry that He has as our high priest, the sacrifice that He gave for us, we looked at Him and thought, man, I never knew He did so much for me. And we saw Him as He truly is. We saw Him not just as the, as the heavenly administrator, but we saw Him as the glorious Son of God. And I wrote it down this way. Some of us, we got our perspective right this week. We all of a sudden can see Jesus for who He truly, truly is. All of a sudden there's been a, a birth of, of humility and reverence and awe in our hearts because we were reminded afresh and anew just how glorious He really is. When Peter and James and John see this, wouldn't you know it, Peter opens his mouth. Peter always did that. Whenever they see Jesus transfigured, they see Him like they'd never seen Him before, but they're seeing Him as He truly is. They also see Moses and Elijah. And they're both glorious as well, and they're talking to the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us they were speaking, another place says they were speaking about His death. And whenever Peter sees these three, I mean, you understand... For a Jew, for a Jew that is also following Jesus, that, I mean, literally the all-star team is standing there. You understand that, right? I, I mean, if you were to this day, if you ask a Jew who the greatest Jew that ever lived was, they won't say Abraham. They are, in fact, by law, not by law, not by God's law, but by their traditions, they are required to say Moses. Because Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets of God. And Elijah, of all the storied and, and, and of all of the, of the famous prophets, Elijah, above any of them, worked great and mighty miracles. Elisha worked more miracles than Elijah, but we do a lot more talking about Elijah than we ever do about Elisha. There was something about the miracles that God performed through this man that grip our attention. And for Peter, he's standing there and he sees all three of them standing there. You know what he says? He says, hey, this is a good place to be. This is a good place to be. I can't tell you the times this past week, man, uh, the congregation was singing and you could just feel the Spirit of God bearing witness in this place. I just thought to myself, man, this is a good place to be. I'd sure rather be here than sitting back on the couch. I'd sure rather be here than walking around down at the wall. I'd sure rather be here than off doing something else. This is a good place to be. But then Peter goes a step too far. You know what he says? He says, this is a good place to be. Let's just go ahead and make us three tabernacles here. Let's make one for Jesus. Let's make one for Moses. Let's make one for Elijah. Now, a tabernacle was literally a meeting place. That's literally what it meant. It, 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 was, a, it was a dwelling place. It was a congregating place. When God gave the Old Testament tabernacle, he, he gave it and He said, there will I meet with thee. 
I believe what Peter's saying is, I want us to have three tabernacles up here so I can go and spend a little time with Jesus, and then I can go spend a little time with Moses, ask him some questions. I can go and spend a little time with Elijah, ask him some questions. The Bible says that there was a voice that thundered from heaven, and it was the voice of God the Father. And look at verse number 6. Verse number 5, the Bible says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then notice what he says. Hear ye Him. Hear ye Him. It's not about the mandates. It's not about the miracles that were performed. But it's about the Son of God. His message, His truth, His Word. Hear Him. The Bible says, When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. Look at verse 8. I like this. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. I wrote it down this way. Listen, some of us this week, we've seen the transfiguration. Jesus has been made glorious to our soul. Some of us this week, we've heard the testimony. Peter had good intentions, but he had a wrong result. And as a product of that wrong result, he received a rebuke from the Lord. And the Lord said, it ain't about Moses, it ain't about Elijah, it's about Jesus, Him and Him alone. And after his pride and maybe his foolishness had been humbled a little bit, Jesus comes along beside him and he touches him and he says, Listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stand up. And when he stands up, he looks around and he sees only one person now. He sees the Lord Jesus. I I jotted it down this way. Some of you all this week, you got your perspective right, but others of you, you got your priorities right. Before it was... Many tabernacles, because I have many desires and many responsibilities. But some of you, God did a work in your heart this week, and when you lifted up your head, you saw Jesus and Him alone, and said, He's all that really matters. He's all that really matters. Some of you, the Word of God and the voice of God, the Spirit of God, one of the things it confirmed in your heart this week is you need to draw closer to Him. You need to focus more on Him. You need to make more of Him. You need to make Him the centerpiece and the heartbeat of your life. That's a glorious thing. And look with me at verse number 9. The Bible says this, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. His disciples asked Him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew Him not, but have done unto Him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that He spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now this is important. There are some th- I don't know why the Lord told them not to mention it. I guess if I studied it out, I may be able to come to some kind of answer. I don't know why the Lord told them not to tell it. But He says to them, don't tell this vision to anyone until I'm risen from the dead. And that immediately sparked a conversation that had just newly, freshly been initiated in their lives. And that was of the death of the Lord Jesus. In fact, if you were to look back in chapter 16, look at verse 21. The Bible says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how they must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things, the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Listen to what Peter does. Then Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. The Lord goes on, turns around and rebukes Peter, says, Get thee behind me, Satan. But here's what I want you to realize. Whenever the Lord started talking about His death, 
the disciples as any Jew would have thought. Because for long years, the book of Malachi closes with a prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah came. And for long years, the nation of Israel labored and still to this day has labored under the false notion that because Elijah has not yet appeared, the Messiah could not have come. And so when the disciples heard Jesus say this, they thought, well, he's just being hysterical. He's just being paranoid. That's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen because Elijah has not come yet. Now, they've just come off the mountain with Elijah. (laughs) So there's no question that when Jesus wants to get a hold of him, he's full well able to get a hold of him. And as they come down off the mountain and he mentions his death again, the disciples ask that question that everybody has been asking and thinking when he's talked about his death. Why do they say Elijah has to come first, Lord? And the Lord says, well, that's true, Elijah has to come first. But Elijah's already came. And they didn't realize it was him. John says that the Lord, or or, I'm sorry, Matthew says the Lord was talking about John the Baptist. Saying that John had come in the spirit and power and ministry of Elijah. In fact, had the Jews been willing to receive Christ as their Messiah, John would have been their Elijah. The kingdom could have been set up. But they rejected his witness and testimony, and they intended to do the very same thing to the Lord Jesus. Now stop and think about it. They hear that Jesus says, I'm going to die soon. And Peter says, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. I won't let it happen to you. But now that they've been on the mountain, and they've seen His glory, and now that they've seen Elijah, and now it's been confirmed that they have no question who it is they're dealing with, now they ask Him, well, what is this all about? He says, well, John would have been Elijah to them. And Matthew says then at that point, they understood He's talking about John. They believed what He was saying. I, I wrote it down this way. This past week we saw Him transfigured. Uh, we've heard the testimony. But some of us this week, we've learned the truth about some things in our life. Sometimes we've learned the truth that maybe we didn't want to learn when God first started dealing with us about it. We wanted to grab the Lord and rebuke Him and say, No, Lord, that's not going to be the case. But we've been up on the mountain and we've seen some things and God has testified to us. And we can't help but yield and give the right away to God's truth. I put it this way. You got not only your perspective right when you saw Him transfigured and your priorities right when you heard the testimony, but some of you, you got your path right when you heard the truth. And you quit fighting God on some things. You said, all right, Lord, if this is the path that you have for me, I'll take this path. What a glorious thing they had experienced. But sadly, you can't live on the mountain. Sooner or later, you're going to have to, as Matthew says it in the narrative, verse 9, they came down from the mountain. Sooner or later, the meeting ends. Sooner or later, the invitation closes. And when that happens... I want you to notice there are some things that we can expect in our lives. You know, uh, 90% of making your way through this life is having a basic understanding of what you can expect to come next. If you can get a good handle on what to expect out of life, then you've gone a long ways to being a success. And I think when we look at this passage, there are some things that happen to them that will also happen to us. Look with me at verse number 14. The Bible says... When they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. You know what they find at the bottom of the mountain, at the foot of the hill? When they come down, they find problems. 
Now, wouldn't you think all that the Lord's been doing up on that hill, that they'd be able to walk off of that mountain and never even touch foot in the valley ground. They'd just step out onto a cloud and just keep on marching, high above all of life's problems. But that's not how it works. And i got news for you. Listen, just because God's done a great thing in your heart and life this week, that don't mean you're not going to have some problems that you're going to have to deal with. In fact, I'd go a step further and say there's probably some problems you're going to have that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't been up on that mountain because the devil gets angry at God doing a work in our life. I see three types of problems, although there's one problem here. I think it embodies three types. Let me say, number one, there were former problems when they got off the mountain. It's interesting when you compare the three gospel narratives of this healing. By the way, in all three of the gospel narratives, this healing is directly connected to the transfiguration. And in all three of them, we find not contradictory things, but complementary things that paint a narrative about what this man was going through with his devil-possessed son. One of the things that the Lord lets us in on in Mark's account is that the Lord Jesus asked the Father this question. How long is it ago since this came unto him? In other words, how long has your boy been in this shape? How long has he been afflicted this way? Mark says that the father looks at Jesus and said, of a child. Now listen, this man was always this daddy's son, but by the time he's brought to Jesus, he's not just a little bitty baby or a little toddler anymore. He's, He's nearing a grown man. And the father says he's been like this ever since he was young. In other words, the father says, I can never remember a time he wasn't this way. And can I just give you this gentle reminder? Listen, there are some problems and some things going on in our life that was around long before these meetings ever took place. And they ain't going to go away just because we've been in revival, just because we've prayed a prayer, just because we've asked God to do something, just because God's done a work in our heart. And I, please I'm, understand, I'm not dismissing the power of prayer. We're going to say a word about it before we close. But I'm saying this, there are some things that were here long before you took a trip to an altar, and they're not necessarily going to disappear just because you made that trip. There are some things the devil's been working on for a long time, and they're not going to go away in a moment's time. I remember hearing a story, I, you've heard me tell this before, but Dr. Lee Robertson one time was preaching a revival at a preacher friend that I know of's church, and this was many, many years ago, and uh, they had the meeting, they had the, the you know, the, the service, and Dr. Robertson, he never preached long anyway, that's probably why he pastored like 15,000 people, I don't know, that's probably why I don't, but <laughs> amongst other reasons, but he didn't preach very long, and then he closed and they had the invitation time, and uh, a young man came forward and knelt down on the altar and he was there, you know, a few minutes and then all of a sudden he got up and went to go back and Dr. Robertson walked over and he said, excuse me, young man, young man. And the fellow was startled. He's not used to that in the invitation. He looked up Dr. Robertson and he said, what were you praying for? And he said, well, I was praying for a lost loved one. He said, how old are they? He said, well, they're in their 30s. And he said, so they've been lost for 30 years. He said, yeah. He said, well, it's going to take a little more praying than that. Some of you men come and help this man pray. A few minutes later, a lady got up off the altar and he said, uh, Ma'am, ma'am, what were you praying for? And she looked up at him and said, Well, honey, I was praying for our nephew. It was Mrs. Robertson. And he said, How long has our nephew been alive? She said, Well, our nephew's 40 years old. He said, 40 years he's been lost. It's going to take more praying than that. Some of you ladies come and help Miss Robertson pray over this. And he looked back at the preacher. He said, This is why you don't have no revival. You don't know how to do an altar call. Amen. <laughs> 
And please understand, listen, God's not interested in you logging overtime at an altar necessarily. It's not all about trying to pad the, the time that you're down. What I'm saying is this. There are some things that the devil's been working on and doing for a lot of years. And it would probably be unwise of us to think that we could come to one meeting or two meetings or three meetings or four meetings or five meetings and God do a work in our heart and then all of a sudden all of our problems are just going to go away. There are some problems the Lord will take away. Man, praise God for it. <laughs> but there are some former problems that we can expect to still be around even after a great meeting like what we've had. Let me give you a second thought. There were fierce problems at the bottom of this hill. I jotted these down. I don't want to take much time going through them because I don't have much time, but I, I jotted down four things that I believe characterize what kind of problem this was. This was probably an ugly problem. This was not, this man didn't just have the, a common cold. This man did not just have uh, maybe some slight, uh, ambiguous uh, disorder. This young man literally was, was uh, gripped in the throes of demonic possession. And it was such that he would cast himself into the water and into the fire. And he would foam at the mouth and he'd tear at his own skin. It would have been a tormented and ugly scene to see this young man. Can I say this? Listen, there's going to be some problems we're going to face in our life. And they're not going to be easy problems. And they're not going to be pleasant problems. They're going to be fierce problems. It is no accident that right after Jesus had been up there in His glory on that mountain, that the devil was down at the foot of it working. Probably while you was at revival meeting this past week, the devil was cooking some things up for your life too. I, I jotted down four things about it. Number one, it was disturbing. And I sort of already mentioned that. I won't belabor it. But look at verse number 15. This father says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Now, when we use that term lunatic, we, we use it to describe someone with mental illness. And, and I think sometimes these lines can be blurred. But suffice it to say that what he was saying about his son is he's not in his right mind. He's driven mad by what he's experiencing. He says he's sore vexed, he's in torment, and oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. It was a disturbing scene. Uh, let me say number two, it was a devastating problem. In Luke's account, we find another little nugget of information that we don't find in Matthew or in Mark's. In Luke chapter 9, verse 38, the Bible says, Behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, this is the same man, and he cries out and he says, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. We don't know where this man's, this, this son's mother was. Maybe she was at home praying. Maybe she went nowhere around. But in this moment, you have a father with his son, and he says to Jesus, please help him. He's my whole world. And losing that boy would have been devastating. Let me tell you something. Just because you love something, that don't mean the devil's going to leave it alone. In fact, what it probably means is he's going to come after it more. It's a devastating problem. Let me say, number three, it was a demonic problem. Lest we think there's any ambiguity about what kind of problem this was. Listen to how Luke describes this. Chapter 9, verse 39. The father says about the son, Lo, a spirit taketh him. And he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. Verse 42. 
He describes when Jesus cast this devil out. It says, as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him, the child, down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. In other words, let's not think this was just a misdiagnosis. Let's not think this was just merely an emotional problem. Let's not think this was merely a chemical imbalance. This boy was literally possessed of the devil. The devil was working in this family's life. I, listen, I understand there are people in this world that want to attribute every single unpleasant thing that transpires to demonic forces. But I do believe this, that there's a lot more that the devil's doing in our life than we probably are willing to recognize or admit. We better open our eyes to the fact that the devil wants to make a mess of our lives. He's out to get you. He's out to get me. It was demonic. And let me say... It was destructive. In Mark's account, Mark 9, chapter 9, verse 22, when the father's describing what this devil does to his son, he says, Off time it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters. Then listen to these next three words, to destroy him. There was no question in this father's mind what this devil was trying to do to his son. It wasn't just trying to distract him. It wasn't just trying to discourage him. This devil was trying to destroy his son. And there are some problems we're going to face in our life. Even if we've been in five nights of meeting, even if God's worked in our heart, even if God's given us some victory, there are some problems we're going to have to face that will be destructive problems that if they're not dealt with, can lay us waste. Let me make a third statement about some things that we can expect. We can expect that there will be former problems. There are some things been going on in our lives long before God ever worked in our heart this past week, and they're going to be around for us to face, even at the foot of the mountain. There are some fierce problems. The devil gets mad when God's working in someone's life. And he listen, he ain't going to tone it down. He's going to turn it up. So we better be ready. But then let me say this. There were formidable problems. The Bible says that this father brings his son to the disciples... And when Jesus comes down off the mountain, he sees a tumult. The multitude is is talking amongst each other, and they're sort of shouting over each other and talking amongst each other. And Jesus just sort of wades in that crowd, and a hush falls over it. And he says, what's going on here? What are you asking them questions about? And that's when the Father speaks up and says, well, Lord, I, I brought my boy to your disciples. I thought they could help him. Sadly, this terrifying and tragic indictment He says, but they could not. His whole narrative is is figured around and is focused upon those four words. But they could not. I I got news for you. There's going to be some problems you're going to face even at the foot of the mountain that are bigger than you and bigger than me. Now, I I promise you, I ain't going to leave you in despair. Because the Lord didn't leave them in despair. He healed that boy. He gave instruction to His disciples. But before we get to that, let me just simply say that just because God's been working in our heart, that doesn't mean all of a sudden we got spiritual superpowers. All of a sudden we get to walk above life's problems. doesn't mean we need to run out and pluck our suspenders. Alright, devil, I got all that you can handle. Just bring it on. There are problems that you and I are going to face that are bigger than us. There are still some things in our life, just because we've been in a week of meeting, just because we've given our heart to the Lord, just because we've surrendered our life to Him, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some things too big for us to handle. 
In fact, I've found this, the closer I get to God, the smaller I feel. And the more helpless I feel. And so we need to be reminded that there are some problems bigger than us. Well, you know the story and we've read through it. The Lord rebukes. I don't believe He was rebuking the disciples in verse 17. I believe He was probably rebuking the scribes and the people gathered around. But He ends it by saying, bring him hither to me. They bring this boy to Jesus. Jesus rebukes the devil, casts him out, heals the young man, and they're on their way. Verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? Now, that may seem like a, a, a naive or a juvenile question, but you've got to remember, these men just went on a preaching tour not long before this. And they had just, in fact, the Bible describes it in the book of Luke in juxtaposition to this narrative. And they had gone all throughout the land, casting out devils, healing people of diseases, preaching the kingdom of heaven. Now, all of a sudden, they've run into this stone wall. And so it's not a given. It's not a rhetorical. They're serious when they look at the Lord and said, Hey, what happened? We've been going up and down this country casting out devils, but something was different about this one. Why could not we cast him out? And let me just simply say this to you before I preach it. There are some things, in light of the things that we can expect, there are some things we must exercise. There's never a point we reach in our Christian life where we can sit back on our laurels and say, all right, we've got it all figured out. There's never a point at which we can let down our guard. There's never a point at which we can retire from military service in the army of the Lord. There's never a time when we can say, hey, I put in my years, I paid my dues, now I'm just going to coast on to glory, and the devil ain't going to give me no problems. Boy, I thought it was interesting. Paul, at the close of the book of, uh, of Galatians, he says this, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. From henceforth let no man trouble me. That was good. Listen, that was good, good wishes and good intentions, Paul. But let me remind you, he died at the acts of, of Nero's executioner. You can say, let no man trouble me. But like it or not, problems are going to come looking for you. And in light of that, there are some things we must exercise. Let me say... And don't get nervous, I'm going to talk about running or going to the gym. But there are some resources we have. Look at verse number 20. Jesus said unto them, this is why you couldn't cast him out, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall, be, it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Let me say, number one, that even on this side of the meeting, even with all that God's done in our heart, with all the victories He's given us, with all of the closeness that we have committed ourselves to with Him, it's still going to take faith for us to live for the Lord, to face the problems that we have, and to walk with God. You don't never grow out of faith. You don't never grow out of faith. Listen, as long as you walk in this world, Paul, at the close of his life, said, we walk by faith not by sight. He gave instruction to Timothy to stir up the gift that was within him and to walk in faith before the Lord. I'm saying this, it don't matter what God's done in your life, you're still going to have to walk by, you're still going to have to trust God. It's amazing to me. We all talk about trusting God and then we get all tore up from the floor up when God calls on us to trust Him. We talk about faith, but then when we're put in a, a, a situation or a condition that requires faith, we seem shocked and astonished. Just because you've been on the mountain these past few days, that don't mean all of a sudden you ain't going to need faith anymore. Day by day, you're still going to have to trust God. 
Day by day, you're still going to have to lean on Him. Day by day, you're still going to have to walk with Him. I'm not going to preach this, but I just want you to notice what's said here. Because a lot of people take this verse and make out a blank check and try to sign Jesus' name to it, and then they're shocked when it bounces. This is not a, 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 a free pass for you to do and accomplish anything in the world if you just will it into existence. That word of faith, power of word, whatever they call it, nonsense. Uh, The Lord says this, listen, the problem is not the faith. Uh, The problem is not, you could not heal this man because of your unbelief. But the reality is it don't take a lot of faith. It just takes a little bit. But I want you to think with this, with me about this. The Lord says in Mark's account of this gospel, looks at his disciple or looks at the man and says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe it. He says, if thou canst believe. You can't just go out there and proclaim something to be a reality and expect God to make it so. He says, if thou canst believe. There are some things you can't believe in. It takes two things to believe. One, it takes the word to believe. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If God hadn't said He's going to do something, we don't necessarily have any reason to believe He's going to do it. Right? And it takes a willingness to believe. We have to be willing for God to do it. It's going to take faith. Let me give you a second thing. Look at verse 21. The Bible says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. It's going to take fervent prayer. Those problems that have been around since long before... These past five days have come and passed. They're still around. And it's going to take more than a few moments of prayer or a trip to the altar to deal with them. It's going to take fervent prayer. The Bible does not say the the casual and thoughtless prayer of a righteous man availeth not much. It says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I'm going to be honest. Listen, most of us spend far less time trying to pray our way out of our problems than the devil ever set aside to plan our way into our problems. Most of us spend far less time trying to get ourselves out of the mess than we even spent trying to get ourselves into the mess. And we'll come to the Lord and we'll say, Lord, I made a mess. Please fix it. And sometimes God's gracious enough that in His providence and in His will, He can answer in that short period of time. But there's going to be some things you're going to face. The Lord said, this kind ain't every kind the same. Some problems, it ain't going to take much. But this kind, he says, this kind takes prayer and fasting. This kind takes effectual, fervent prayer. You might be saying, why ain't the Lord done this in my life? Because it's this kind. And it's going to take a little more than just one trip to the altar. It's going to take a little more than just two or three minutes in the prayer closet. It's going to take effectual, fervent prayer. Let me say that it's going to take fervent prayer Then let me close with this. It's going to take fasting in some of these situations. I believe in fasting. You wouldn't know it to look at me. Somebody say amen to that. Fasting is, I think, something that is quite misunderstood nowadays. Me and my wife were talking about it before the service tonight. I told her, I said, one of these days I'm going to preach a message on fasting. I just got to wait until I can practice what I preach. But I said, I want to preach on fasting because very few people understand. In fact, I think the same misunderstanding people make about prayer is the same misunderstanding they make about fasting. I think oftentimes they think of fasting as some way to get a hold of God. A lot of times people think of prayer as some way to get a hold of God. When in fact, prayer has a lot more to do with God getting a hold of you than it does you getting a hold of God. 
And fasting has a lot less to do with getting God in a listening mood as it does with getting you in a praying mood. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I do want to read this passage to you in Isaiah 58. It's probably the most definitive passage on fasting. Verse number 4, the Lord is speaking to Israel and He says, Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. He said, is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, the Lord says everything a fast isn't. A fast is not something so that you can brag to to those around you that you're fasting. A fast is not something so that you can walk around and look as though you're fasting. A A fast is not something that you can do so you can get the attention of others. A fast is not something you do just to afflict yourself and make yourself feel bad and beat up on yourself. It's not like this crowd that wears the hair shirt and beats themselves on the back with whips. The Lord says, I ain't interested in any of that. I don't take joy in your affliction. Then He says this, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? He says to loose the bands of wickedness, to do or to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. In other words, he says the purpose of this fast is not to bind you up; it's to break you free. It's not got anything to do with everybody seeing how serious you are or seeing how sorry you are, but it's about you reminding your flesh that it doesn't get to run you. It's about you getting focused on serving the Lord. And then he says, sometimes it does have an external purpose. He says, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house when thou seest the naked, uh, the, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? In other words, sometimes a fast has a byproduct of reminding us how needy other people are. Most of us done forgot what it's like to be hungry. And a fast has the ability to remind us that there's some folks around us that are in that condition and situation all the time. He says this, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. Then thou shalt call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and He shall say, Here I am. In other words... Isaiah says this, or the Lord says it through Isaiah. He says, you're fasting for all the wrong reasons. What you ought to be fasting for is not to get a hold of God, but to get you in such a condition that you can get a hold of God. It's not to try to get Him to listen to your prayers. He already listens to your prayers. It's to try to get you in the right disposition and attitude and condition to be doing praying. And I'm just saying this, there are some things that we're going to face on the other side of this meeting. They ain't going to go away easy. Thank God there are some things that God just merely takes away from us, but there are some things, some problems that have been around long before this meeting has. There's been some problems. The devil's turned up the heat. He's angry. And there are some things that are, frankly, just bigger than us. But we've got a God that's bigger than our problems. And in light of that, listen, it's going to take some faith to trust God through these things. It's going to take some fervent prayer to beg God to change these circumstances and to change us and to do in us what brings Him glory. And it's going to take some fasting to get us in a right condition and in a right disposition for God to begin to work in our lives. Listen, I don't want this meeting to be about what happened the past few days. If if, if this meeting don't reach no further than the past few days, it was a waste of time. 
I want it to be something that reaches out into the future that changes us. Now listen, I, I hope you were here this past week. Most of you were, but even if you wasn't here this past week, God may have been working in your heart. And I'm saying this, no matter where you get to in your spiritual walk, it's still going to take faith, fervent prayer, and fasting. It's still going to take walking with God. There are some things that they... Listen, they've been a hard time and a long time coming. They're not going to be a short time and an easy time going. It's going to take some sp- serious spiritual labor to get these things in a right condition in our life. And I think we ought to start it tonight, just to be honest. I think there are some things that we ought to get a start on tonight in our heart, in our life, putting ourselves before the throne room of God, committing ourselves unto His trust and His watch care, and saying, listen, I'm committed to walk with God even beyond those few days. I'm committed for God to do a work on the valley the same way they did on the mountain.